as we continue our study in the resurrection. First Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 through 50. I invite you to turn there. I'll be reading out the New King James Version, as is my custom. First Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 35, God's Word declares, But someone will say, How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as He pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another fish, another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. If one star differs from another star in glory, so also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. And thank you, Lord, for giving us something to sing about. Amen. And that is exactly our study this morning. It is somewhat instructional today, more informative, but within the content of that information comes a very powerful statement about our place in the resurrection and what has been accomplished for us through the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so this morning we want to begin a study of how, or continue a study of how the resurrection occurs. We've looked at the beginning of chapter 15 of the narrative of that this was the message that has always been preached among those who are genuinely of Christ that we have the eyewitness accounts, we have the historical evidence that this claim of the resurrection, which is singularly that of the true believer, is demonstrated to be absolutely true by the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, by his historical fact. Secondly, we saw that the necessity for it to be demonstrated that without that resurrection, 
there isn't anything in Christianity by which we can stake claim to and have hope in. That if we are simply practicing a religion as any other religion, we are doing so in absolute vanity, of, in worthlessness and uselessness, if there is no resurrection and if Christ is not raised. We then looked as well at our position in Christ as contrasted with our position in Adam. That in the, as a result of that, acknowledging the resurrection should have a very significant effect upon our life. That we cannot claim the resurrection if there is not demonstrated in our life true belief in that resurrection by two specific things that Paul speaks of, and that is, number one, last week, our willingness to declare that truth at any cost. They will share it with others because it is their only hope, just as it is our only hope. Therefore, to withhold that information from anyone is perhaps the greatest act of hatred known to man. To condemn others to eternity in the lake of fire for whatever selfish reasons we would have for withholding that information from others. And truly the Bible talks about others' blood being upon our hands. Secondly, it should be evidenced by our awakening to righteousness. That we no longer have sin as the characteristic of our life, but rather that we seek to gain in the knowledge of God. We seek to develop a righteousness in our life that exceeds that of even the most religious people around us. And that in the course of doing so, we recognize the need to be careful in the company we keep. All of this has been driven and built out of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has been laying forth an argument for it very carefully. He now comes to another question that comes from a very sarcastic point of view of the world and of those within Christianity who want to question the resurrection in terms of what it is like and what, how it happens. And one of those questions was, um, how is God going to collect all the cells that used to be yours, gather them together, and reconstitute you? And we're going to address that today. And I've heard that argument actually proposed, and people have some very strange ideas, and that's nothing new. That is something that has been around for centuries throughout the church age where we've had some very strange views of what it takes to be resurrected and even the church, the, the Catholic church at least, and others of uh, that ilk that have taken measures to try to prevent some from being resurrected, as odd as that sounds. So we're going to look into this informative text and try to derive a good 
understanding of the mechanics of resurrection. And hopefully out of that we will gain greater understanding of its great value and purpose in our life. Before we do that, let's go Lord in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the opportunity to look into your word this morning. And we do commit this time to you. It is certain that uh, within the thinking of man, within our own uh, intuition, uh, we will always come to error. So Lord, this morning we want to depend upon your spirit and your word of truth to engage our reasoning skills, to engage our minds, to challenge them, and to bring discernment there that we might see from your word, your truth, we might submit ourselves to that truth, bring it into our speech, into our attitudes, into our living, that we might please you more and more. We thank you again for the passage before us. We pray as we look into it, you might guard it from our time here in it, from error, from opinion, from philosophies of this world that so integrate much of our thinking. Lord, help us to leave off from the natural. We might uh, engage the spiritual today. We need your help in that. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, the question is asked, how does it happen? How are the dead raised up? What is the mechanical means by which this happens? What does actually occurs when the resurrection uh, comes? Uh, and what happens, um, and, and we look back to Christ and we recognize an open grave, we see an absent body, and we can come to some interesting conclusions. Of course, uh, the traditional view is that God didn't have to open up the grave to get Jesus out, but rather to let men know that he's not there and to bring men in. Uh, we see the resurrected form of Christ uh, behaving uh, very differently on a, and yet still able to engage our physical world. And so the question comes up, if you really believe in the resurrection, how is it going to happen? And uh, this is very intriguing because of where historically we have gone. Many in the past have taught that uh, if you are burned to death, that you will not participate in the resurrection. That is why, historically, they burned those that the church determined were heretics. And by the church, you know who I'm referring to, um, the Roman church. If they identify someone as a heretic, they would burn them to death. Uh, because they believed that by doing so, they would prevent them from participating in the resurrection. And so it wasn't even enough if a heretic had died. They would dig up his bones, posthumously, of course, having determined him a heretic, and would dig up his bones and burn them, just to make sure that he wouldn't be participating in the resurrection. Because they did not understand the mechanics of it, they thought that there were certainly means by which that God could not reconstitute the cells that used to be part of your body so you can resurrect, be resurrected. And uh, John Calvin uh, was, had a very interesting perspective on this. And uh, so he 
was uh, reticent to burn to death several of his opponents um, that uh, happened into his town and that were captured and condemned by him as heretics, quote-unquote. But he decided that instead of burning them to death, um, they should uh, just take off their heads because they might be our brethren. Think about that for a little bit. Okay? They might be Christians, and we don't want to keep them from participating in the resurrection, so we're just going to decapitate them instead of burning them as their judgment. Because he just wasn't quite sure that they were heretics enough. They just didn't agree with him. So when we look at the history of this passage, we see a blaring need for us to really understand what the answer to this question, what, it, how does it happen? What does God really do um, at that resurrection? We talk about graves being blown open at the, at the uh, taking up of the church, and we, and we talk about those kinds of terms as though God really did need to take these cells and re-enliven them and to make them into uh, a reconstituted body like we have today. And again, I want to come to this passage and recognize that a lot of what we have been thinking about uh, our bodies, uh, we need to rethink about in terms of the resurrection. Um, It is not imperative that God gather all of the cells that ever were once part of your body. Um, If that were the case, things would be really strange. Because you've been leaving parts of your body all over the planet. Okay, um, the cells of your body fall off your skin, your hair, uh, your nails. Um, and uh, I know that you think that there are the children gone. Yes. All right. Um, all those teeth you lost as children. Okay. The tooth fairy did not take them. Right. I think I still have a bunch of my children's teeth. If you guys want them, you can keep them in your pockets. So at the resurrection, they're handy. You know, you want to get all that. Uh, what happens to those parts of your body that are left here and there that that get ground up and uh, what happens when I donate my heart after my die and it's in somebody else's body? What happens at the resurrection? Is that guy going to drop dead because my heart's going to disappear? Is that what the resurrection involves? And our thinking is always on the natural side. We're always thinking about these these fleshly entities. And, and uh, I always give this illustration when I teach it with people, and I say, okay, we have people that die at sea. What do we do with them when they die at sea? We cast them into the ocean. We just send them in there. We wrap them up and put a weight on them, and we bury them at sea. What happens to them? What happens to them? They become fish food, essentially. And then we go out and fish in that sea, and then we catch a fish that maybe ate my uncle so-and-so, who was buried at sea, and now am I a cannibal? Because I ate a fish that ate of Uncle Summonsons. And then what happens at the resurrection to that? You see the foolishness? And so when Paul says, how foolish are you? Don't you understand anything? How foolish are we to get wrapped up in the physicality of a resurrection that's whole purpose is not physical at all, but spiritual? And so Paul goes back into... Elementary school. It has to teach us some spiritual fundamentals. That we need to get our thinking out of the natural world and into 
the spiritual world, but to do so, let's just take something out of the natural world. That this flesh really becomes a seed kind of thing. It, it is, it is uh, a very small representation of what God has in store for us. It is... Uh, uh, doesn't really have a lot of semblance with what is to come. And so Paul takes the illustration of a grain of wheat. He says, we take this seed and we don't look at it and say, that is a wheat plant. We understand it to be simply a seed. And we don't put it in the ground expecting it then to uh, just start bubbling up wheat seeds. You don't look at the ground and wait for little seeds to start popping out like popcorn, you know. We don't anticipate that. Nor do we anticipate that after a wheat plant has started to grow that we can dig it up and find the wheat seeds still down in there and start over again. No, we understand that to bring forth that life, this wheat seed is going to give itself up, that it's going to break open, and that that seed that is germinated inside of it is going to produce something that looks very different than the seed. The seed is just a little kernel. But here comes this plant that really, for a long, long time, doesn't look at all like the seed. In fact, its whole life, it doesn't really look like the seed. It will produce more seeds eventually, but what is born out of that little seed doesn't look at all like the seed. And this, Paul points to us as an illustration of how our thinking ought to be about these bodies with reference to the resurrection. And it's fascinating because I hear people talk about what kind of bodies they're going to have uh, in the resurrection. That we're going to have perfect bodies and we... And we Look forward to that, and, and certainly in heaven that's going to be the case. And, and many people have said, well, can we uh, recognize each other in heaven? And, and again, we go back to uh, Christ, and there were some recognizable elements and some unrecognizable elements about Christ. And I believe when we get to Revelation chapter 1, we begin to realize what was so unrecognizable about Christ is that his appearance did change somewhat from before the resurrection to after the resurrection. That is why Mary didn't really recognize him at first. She didn't really realize he thought he was the gardener. And, and uh, the whole uh, idea, the description of him in Revelation is that he comes in white. White hair, everything. Um, and we associate that with oldness, but in Scripture that has been associated with glory. And we're going to talk about coming in glory. And so if you're really into the color of your hair, the probability is that it might be white when you get to heaven. So some of you are going to be more recognizable to us because we're gotten used to you in white hair. Um, some of you are not going to recognize all because we got used to you having no hair. But um, that's the probability. You're going to be in the glory of God. What do you think that effect is going to have? Well, by the representation of Christ in Revelation, we find a great difference. And so, the other idea is that we'll have no evidence of the hardships of this life upon us when we get resurrected. That God is just going to take and He's going to mend everything about these bodies. So when I get to heaven, any flaw, any anything uh, that I consider uh, uh, 
weakness is going to be gone. Uh, we often talk about the blind being able to see in heaven and, and the deaf being able to hear. And, and certainly there's a perfection there. But what I love to look back to is Christ's meeting with his disciples. And he invites them to do something. To prove who he is. This is a resurrected Christ who says, look at my wounds. And based upon our thinking about this complete, total mending of our body that will be in its perfect state, we shouldn't see any of those wounds, right? Look into my hands, thrust into my side, feel the wounds. They're there. The scars are there. The evidence is there. You might say, why? If this is his resurrected body, why are those evidences there? And I'm convinced that there will be some evidences upon us of this life and of those acts of love and dedication to God that, that wreak havoc sometimes on our bodies that we look at it may be ugly and God says those are beautiful. They're the evidence of your service to me. And those scars are not ugly in heaven. They are that which we glory in and we look at and we marvel at and we rejoice in and glorify God in. And I would contend that there are going to be such scars carried with us into heaven of those that we acquired in the service of our Lord. For in the heavenly realm, those scars are not scars of ugliness, but of beauty. They are that which glorifies our Savior, even our sufferings here, even as we are told to um, fill up the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, yes, when I see Paul in heaven, I fully anticipate to be able to look upon his back the scars of scourgings for his Savior's sake. I fully anticipate to see within his new body those evidences. But not because God couldn't heal them, but because they stand as a testimony of a life given over to him. And so God gives a body different than this one. Yes, certainly it has a relationship to this body. It is more interested in what has been accomplished by this body for all eternity. As a young person, I came up with this great imagination. I remember even writing a little story when I was, oh, probably about 16, 17, that I envisioned that people in heaven were going to be different sizes based not upon how old or how large you were physically, but what you had done spiritually on earth. That there were going to be pygmies in heaven because they did so little for God. And there were going to be giants in heaven because they did so much for God. And in my little mind, as a, uh, and yeah, they're little, well, 16 year old, they're, they're getting there. Uh, that was just a, uh, turning point for me to think, how big do I want to be in heaven? <laughs> how much do I want to serve God? Do I want to be this little pygmy walking around that looks like a child because I did so little? 
Or do I want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? And in my mind, I, I translated that into greatness of stature rather than one of position. So there's a lot we can do here um, with what we are going to be and how we are going to appear. But everything that we relate to these physical bodies needs to be baptized, immersed into the realization that what we are looking forward to in eternity is so little physical um, that it's almost negligible. Yes, you will be eating in heaven. Some of you are relieved over that. Phew. I was really worried about that part. I was going because I really like that, and I would not be heaven without eating. Um, from what I can tell, there won't be any meat. So get your fill now. Um, there'll be most uh, from the fruit of the trees of uh, life there, uh, and from the river of life. Um, that's described for you. So you're still going to be able to eat. There's going to be harvest made every month. It says. Um, and so we have that description. So some of our experience here in this life will extend into that one, but it will be immersed in the spiritual nature that what that food no longer is about satisfying my flesh, but it's understanding that direct connection between that tree of life and that river of life and that throne of my Savior, Jesus Christ, from which it flows. It becomes a spiritual act of worship that as I consume this, that I recognize that this is life from my Savior. And we envelop ourselves in the spiritual side that is, it's here if we're willing to tap that and Christ keeps calling His disciples to try to get them to that spiritual plane of thinking. But we are frankly too dependent upon the physical in our thinking today. And so, so Paul begins to explain the very variety within the bodies of the flesh, the glories that surround us, that make it easier, hopefully, for us to understand that we will be changed that what is to come has only a seed basis in what our existence is here. So he talks about the different kinds of flesh. And so it's, we have examples around us if we'll simply start thinking in those that there's, there's a differentiation between the different species in terms of their, their flesh and, and specifically between mammals and birds and, and uh, fish. And he distinguishes them and men. Uh, and then he looks at the idea of the celestial bodies and, the, and one glorying differently from another. And so we can recognize when we go out in the night and even during the day, we can go out and recognize, well, that's, that, that's a moon. That's not a star. That's, that's a planet. That's not a star. That's a star. And I can differentiate between different colors of stars. It's hard for us to do because we live in the city. But you get out far enough and you lay down, you can differentiate those very quickly. And so um, I can go out there even here. We can distinguish them and we recognize, well, that's not a planet. That's a, that's a star. And that's a moon, and, and we know the difference. And so there's going to be a, a differentiation between this body and the one to come. 
Now, when you look up in the sky and you see those various celestial things, um, we see some, even though we know the variety, we know the distinguishing aspects of them, we also recognize that they have something in common, don't they? They are all providing light to us. And even if we go to all flesh, we, we recognize that even though there's a distinction we, between fish and birds and, and critters and men, and we recognize the distinction between, within their flesh, we see that there is some commonality there too. And there will be some commonality to what we have today. But again, when we look forward to the resurrection, our emphasis isn't on what we are today, but on what will be made in Christ. And so, as we look at these examples around us, of the growing cycle, of the variety among in the animal kingdom and man, the variety among the celestial bodies that we look upon in the sky, we realize, as in verse 42 says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. We are sowing something weak, small, almost insignificant, that little part um, is going to die and be gone, and what's going to come out of it is going to be much greater than what we began with. And so what God has in store for us in the resurrection, this physical body, these cells that, that we put into the ground and bury with an anticipation of having a testimony at the resurrection um, is not the major part of the resurrection. It is the minor part. It comes first in chronology, and Paul's going to describe that. We have the natural man come first, and the spiritual. Um, we have the, the Adam, our, our place in Adam, and then our place in Christ. Um, so there is a chronology there. The seed has to come before the plant um, in, in his example there. Uh, but recognize that even though it is prior in chronology, it does not make it the more significant. So if I take a little nut, a little acorn, it planted in the ground, and I have a giant oak tree come forth from that, we don't sit there and look at this giant oak tree and say, that was some nut. We don't sit there and glory in the nut. The nut's gone. It fulfilled its purpose. And look at the insignificance of that acorn compared to this giant oak that stands before you. But you see, the problem is, is that all we see are little acorns. <laughs> We've not been exposed to giant trees. And so we think the acorn is something. We think that this flesh is something important that needs to, that God's gonna have to, you know, he, he modify and, and reconstitute and, and he's gonna do all these things with, and, and our focus is on the acorn instead of the giant oaks that God has prepared for us in glory.
And so we are sown in a natural man. We begin not with the most powerful element, but the most beggarly. Our body is sown, it says in verse 42, in corruption. It is there to perish because of our sin, because of the stain of sin upon it. This body is born to die. It wasn't created to die, but it has been born to die now because of Adam. And Paul, again, is going to keep referencing, just as he did earlier in the chapter, where he talked about Christ as the second Adam, and this is reflected. I think he really develops this a lot when he writes later on in the book book of Romans, and again goes back and visits this relationship that we are all in Adam, and thus we are born with death hanging over us, that we have this corruptible body. And for that reason, and if that is the only reason, we recognize that it is a beggarly thing. It is not something for us to glorify. It is not something for us to, to spend so much time and effort for. Uh, rather, we realize that this is the weakest state I will be in. This is my weakest element, is this physical flesh. And yet we grant it so much power in our thinking. And this Paul calls foolishness. Why are you so consumed with thinking about This body. I mean, think about it. How much time, how much thought, how much energy do we exude, exert to care for this flesh? To feed it, to comfort it, to keep it warm, and to try as hard as we can to make it look pretty. Think about it. Think about how much of your life is exerted upon the weakest part of your person. The weakest part, the most beggarly aspect of our existence is this corruption, this corruptible flesh. Now, am I proposing you all come back next week unshaved, unshowered, um, wearing rags and starving? No, I just want us to understand why we are the fools that Paul refers to is because it, it... it takes so much of our time and energy to keep these weak things alive. Well, you're not keeping yours alive. You're really, and see this? I'm not worried about keeping it alive. I'm worried about keeping it fat, all right, and, and comfortable. And we would all probably do a little bit to spend a little less time caring for these bodies and more time caring for our souls. This is the corruption. My spirit and soul are life. They will be given a new body. And as a (laughs) 16-year-old, I don't know what it was that captivated my thing. I can't remember what it was that got me started on that. As a 16-year-old, I started thinking about that. Is is I'm so worried about the stature of my physical body, and I was a little runt. I was a little runt of a kid. Okay, I don't think I still was growing two and three inches when I got to college, so I was a tiny little guy. And so uh, maybe that's what it was. You know, I can't do anything to get my body to grow, so I might as well try to grow a spirit that's worth something. Well, that we would spend some attention 
on making sure that it's fed, making sure that it's exercised, making sure that our spirits have a workout every day, that we are engaging ourselves in it. They're making sure that its needs are met. Why? Because this flesh is the corruption that Paul talks about. That this is death we are wearing. And so we don't want to emphasize it even in our discussion of the resurrection. And so there's a lot of concern today and in the past over what do we do with our bodies? And some would contend because I think it's still connected to the ideas of the past that Christians shouldn't be cremated and and maybe not because of the testimony of that. I would agree with that. But if it's about the resurrection, they're wrong. Because this flesh is the part that must be done away with. It is the corruption. It will be raised to incorruption. What God has in store for us is an incorruptible flesh. One that will live forever. That is not born to die, but rather that is created by God to live. It will be the culmination of our new creation that began when we first trusted in Jesus Christ, that which was in us, our new man, that's still in this old flesh. That the old man has been put to death, but it hasn't been buried and done away with, yet we're still dragging around with us as a corpse in us. But we have something new inside of us. And at that resurrection, that newness inside of us will be culminated by a newness that we will be enveloped in this new body, this incorruptible flesh. Why are we so enthralled and concerned over the corruptible? Why aren't we as enthralled or or more enthralled? Why are we more concerned with the incorruptible? That I might employ the corruptible to enhance the incorruptible. This is the idea of Scripture. This is why the disciples could walk away from a beating they took at the hands of the, of the religious leaders of Israel and could rejoice that they were counted worthy of suffering for His name's sake. Why? Because they had their minds on the incorruptible. They knew that these bodies are wearing out anyway. They are born for death. But when we are reborn, we are reborn to life. So this body is not the major aspect of the resurrection. Yes, I plant a seed in the ground with the anticipation that someday that ground is going to break open. And there's going to be a little green thing. Right? We want to see that ground break open and that little green thing come out to tell us that there's life. So yes, we want to see that ground break open and the world go, where did all those bodies go? But I don't anticipate that God is up there trying to collect all the atoms that were once part of me to reconstitute me. I simply recognize that He starts with that seed, but He's going to not just transform it, He's going to recreate. That we'll have a similitude to what, what it once was, but yet... It will be 
of a whole newness of life and not death. He goes on in verse 43, and I need to press on quickly. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. Oh, that we would understand that distinction. And for those of you that want to glory in your physical accomplishments, your physical features, and uh, to some degree I really appreciate the, the Amish perspective of one mirror on the back of a door in their house. Um, and it's usually about that big, traditionally. That whole idea that the more we glory in these bodies, the more we are getting confused over what's the priority in our lives. And so I harass the poor girls in my home um, constantly over what are you doing in the bathroom so long? I know where they're standing. Do you know? All of you know where they're standing in the bathroom, right, guys? We all know where they're standing in front of the mirror because it's got to be perfect, doesn't it, ladies? Why? Our flesh is one of dishonor. The real glory. And this is what Peter tries to tell the ladies. Listen, your real glory is not on your physical features. The real glory is not over every shiny thing that you can hang all over yourself. The real glory is not in your vestments. Your real glory is a meek and quiet spirit given to the Lord that never fades, a beauty that never fades. Are you investing in that, ladies? Are you spending as much time in the mirror of the soul called the Bible as you are in the mirror of your dishonorable body? We're sown in dishonor. What is our glory is not this, but what is to come. Verse 44, it is so natural bodies raise a spiritual body. And here Paul wants to develop this idea that there is in fact a natural body and there is a spiritual body. That what is to come is predominantly spiritual whereas what we seem to engage in today is predominantly natural. Again, not that there is no a physicality at all to our eternity because it is obvious that there is a physicality there, but it's not dominant. Not in the least. So there is a, a natural world and we are engaged in it and we are, we are in tune with it and we can touch it and feel it our, and we rely so heavily upon our physical senses when we get to this resurrection. What will dominate us is our spiritual senses. They will be overwhelmingly that which we depend upon to determine reality, to worship with, to engage that kingdom of God with. Again, it's not that these are unavailable to us today, for they certainly are but they are often unaddressed. And we put them as insignificant and we applaud ourselves for spending five minutes addressing them a day, if that. We allow our spirits to wither on the vine of Christ. 
by absorbing ourselves in the natural. Well, we know the natural comes first. He was a living being. Adam was. And he destroyed that life by his sin. And he passed on death to all of us. Not life, but death. That we were all born to die. But Christ Jesus, the last Adam, verse 45, is a life-giving spirit. Now, some have taken this and abused it and tried to make Jesus not fully human, and that just isn't true. That's not what Paul's communicating here. What he's saying is that we have a future, and the emphasis of that future needs to be upon our spirit, and that when we receive Christ, it is a life-giving. We do not get our life, and, and we get the idea we get, well, I'm alive because of my parents. No, you're dying because of your parents. The one that's going to give you life is Jesus Christ. Life eternal. And so it says through the second Adam we are given life. The first Adam was created a living being. He became a living being. But he couldn't give that to anyone else because he destroyed it by his sin. And there had to come another one who could give life to us who are full of corruption and death. And that one is Jesus Christ. The natural is first and the sect, then the spiritual. Adam, of course, predates us. And we're reminded here in the passage just what it is that we're trying to fatten up, pretty up, and strengthen up. And that is, you're just trying to carefully organize dirt. That's really all you're trying to do. As you emphasize your body, you're simply trying to beautify dust. Because that's all you really are. And so this is what he talks about when he talks about the dishonor and the corruption and the, and the naturalness of us that we're really just dust. That Adam passed that on to us but the second man is the Lord from heaven. And so we have a heavenliness to us at the resurrection that we already share in today in our spirit. If we are willing to involve ourselves in it, if we're willing to get into God's word and to, and to strengthen that aspect of it, we still can begin that process today. We don't have to wait till I get my new body and then I can be spiritual. No, the spirit the, the, the work of Christ of recreating you has already begun as soon as you trust Him as Savior and Lord. And that is something going on inside you that you must feed. You must care for. You must nourish it. You have got to pay some attention to it. It's got to be something in your thinking that you're going to address on a regular basis that you're going to emphasize in your life. Or it will wither. Yes, we look forward to that day. But maybe that 16-year-old's ideas are not too far off. That that eternal state that's waiting for us may be dependent more about what we do with the new creation of Christ in us today. Not with what we do with our body. 
But rather, what are you doing to your spirit? Are you feeding it? Are we exercising it? Are we strengthening it? Do we really hunger and thirst after righteousness? You see, we who are called according to the way of the second man are called to the heavenly. That it becomes our priority. It's what's real to us. And so I take earthly things like money and possessions and things like that and I invest them not for a greater return here, but I invest them for an eternal return. And so the opportunity for us to get the gospel out, whether it be in this community and to have more children come to our World Life Clubs because we don't want to charge anybody anything for that because we're not going to let that keep anyone from the kingdom of heaven. We'd rather invest our resources to make sure these children come and hear the gospel free of charge. I'm thrilled that we were able to participate in the gospel going forth in India and Haiti and and Peru and and globally. I'm excited. That is perhaps the number one objective I have. Someone asked me a couple years ago what my real objective was for this church, and uh, they were surprised at my answer. To get as much resources from here out there. To channel as much resources uh, from you to get it out there. To reach the lost, whether it be your time, your experiences, your knowledge, yes, your money and material things too, to put feet on, to mobilize it, that it reaches the, the world for Christ. And I do that unapologetically. Too many churches are so focused in on the natural and serving themselves, making sure that it's it, that they're fat and comfortable and that they are surrounded by beauty of this world. They have no thought of the next. So we are not here to build a cathedral. We are here to make temples of the living God. What, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, which you have of God, and you're not your own? You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. And the best use of this corruptible, dishonorable, natural thing is to invest its resources, its energy, its work, the ergs that can be generated out of it for the kingdom of God is the very best use of your energy. It will last for eternity. So we are called to be of a heavenly sort. We have borne the image of the man of dust. We will bear the image of the heavenly man. This is the new creation. I look forward to it with great anticipation, to its fulfillment, but I know it has already begun. 
And Paul tells us in another passage that faithful is he who has begun a good work in you to complete it in the day of Jesus Christ. And so something has already begun in us. And it's time we started looking like something real was going on in us spiritually. That our focus isn't on the flesh. But that our focus is on our spiritual selves. And then lastly, in this study, verse 50. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This natural man will have no place in God's kingdom. This corruptible cannot get what is incorruptible. That's why the resurrection is so necessary. If all God is doing is reconstituting these bodies for eternity, it won't work. These bodies cannot inherit heavenly things. We can't. They're too weak. They've been too exposed to the sin of Adam. They must be done away with. And so, no, I'm not trying to make sure that I live a healthy life so I leave a good, healthy corpse so that when I get resurrected, I have a good, clean body to work with. No. I live a healthy life hoping that in my health, I can use that energy and work to serve my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to accomplish something for a kingdom that this body cannot possibly inherit. So let me use it up for God. Because it's not going with me. But let me share with you something that is going with you. Your time every day with God and His Word is going with you. Your investment of the gospel in other people's lives is going with you. Your time of prayer is going with you. It's forever. Oh, that it would captivate more of our attention. That we'd be a little more thoughtful about the eternal parts of us than this corruptible part. And I'm as guilty as any, all of you, any of us. We all daily need to subject these bodies. Paul says, I buffet my body. I bring it under subjection. Why? to remind myself that it's the eternal that matters. Our children need to know that. And we're in a season that we have transformed into a worship of God in coming in the flesh, um, phenomenally enough, um, and we've transformed it into a season of getting more for our flesh than we could ever use or need. Just because somebody else because Billy has more toys than I do. And that's what every commercial basically says. Oh, that we would go after some spiritual gold, silver, and precious stones. 
for our children this season and every season. To invest in them. And yes, your spiritual parenting will go with you into eternity, whether your children do or not. Wisdom is on the marketplace, on the corner, saying, come and buy from me. Because what I have to sell you is forever. There's another one on the same intersection, directly across. Proverbs describes her and seeks to call the fool in and her way is death. And every day you're confronted with that choice. You are at that intersection every day of your life. Who are you going to listen to? Who are you going to buy goods from? Wisdom is there. She's calling. She has some wares that she's willing to sell you. It's going to take some time and some energy and some investment on your part. Um, The Spirit doesn't grow on its own. You either choose to buy from her or you buy from the harlot on the opposite corner. And what she's selling isn't just sex. That's a harlot of the world that says, buy my way. Take care of your flesh. Comfort it. The world wants you to focus on the physical. And wisdom stands out there with a capital W and calls you, buy from me. I have something eternal. Buy it from me. You're at that intersection every day. And if we really, really, really believe in the resurrection, we will spend a lot of time on wisdom's corner. Engaged in trade of my time, my energy, my attention in exchange for all that she has to offer me. The invitation is there every day. Who will you buy from? That which is temporal, dishonorable, natural, corruptible. Or that which is glorified. That which is powerful. That which is incorruptible. That which is spiritual. We have that choice every day, brethren. My challenge to you is to choose wisdom's way.